0: Is Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 8 but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he had which he had which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Good morning. I invite you to be taking out your Bibles. We're going to be studying from several passages this morning in our New Testaments. We hope that you have them out and ready to study along with us from the Word of God. We are indeed thankful for the opportunity that we've had to be able to worship our God this Lord's Day. We are also coming at the end of our gospel meeting. I always struggle with what to preach or how long to preach sometimes because we're all probably a little bit tired after a busy week, but we are nevertheless thankful for another opportunity that we've had to come and worship our God as we have been able to enjoy that blessing all week in the past week that we've had. Sometimes we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Or maybe we'll sing... Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Or another hymn that we might sing is deeper than the ocean and wider than the sea is the grace of the Savior for sinners like me. We enjoy thinking and singing about the grace of God and it's how it has transformed our lives, how he has saved us from our sins. In the passage that we just heard in our reading in the book of Ephesians in the second chapter, where Paul is defending and explaining uh, this wonderful gift of salvation and how it has happened and occurred by God's grace and His kindness. He tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, and there beginning at verse 4, when he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Just as a parenthetical statement there at the end of that thought, that this grace explains everything that we need to understand about our salvation through jesus christ and we marvel at god's grace the marvelous grace of our loving lord we we marvel at it we consider it to be amazing amazing grace and we find it almost unfathomable that God's grace could reach us and save us from our sins. The idea of grace is properly defined as favor or care or help or goodwill. Sometimes we call it unmerited favor. It comes from the Greek word charis and it is related to the idea of charity and goodwill. It is sometimes translated as thankfulness in our New Testament. In the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, and in verse 57, that word there is translated, but thanks be to God, that it is the idea of thankfulness there, that it is grace to God that we are offering a returning back to him sometimes it's translated as gift in first Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 3 in first Corinthians chapter 16 and in verse 3 Paul is writing about the money that he is going to be taking back to Jerusalem in that third missionary journey that he was on and he said when I arrive, whomever you may approve I will send them with letters to carry your gift To Jerusalem, it's the same word that sometimes, oftentimes, is translated as grace. I'll carry your grace back to Jerusalem. I think that helps us understand that whenever we talk about grace, it is a gift. That God's grace is a gift. That it is an action that he has uh, made and that he has granted us something. And so we want to consider this morning, just briefly, about what the New Testament teaches us about God's grace. And how we are saved by His amazing and His marvelous grace. And the first thing that we need to understand is that God's grace is connected to Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17, in the opening chapter of the Gospel according to John, John makes this statement about Jesus. He says, for of His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. That it is in Jesus Christ that we come to see the embodiment of God's grace. That we have in the person of Jesus We come to understand God's grace and that measure of goodness and kindness and goodwill and charity that he is wanting to express, not just to us, but to the whole world, that we come to learn of God's grace in Jesus. And we see that not just in the person of Jesus alone, but we see it in the definitive act of Jesus and I say the definitive act that we'll see here in the book of Galatians in Galatians chapter 1 there's a couple of passages that we'll look at here in Galatians but in Galatians chapter 1 as Paul opens this letter in Galatians chapter 1 and in verse 3 he says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. What I want you to notice here is Paul is writing uh, and he is expressing the grace of God. Grace to you and peace from God. From the Father and from Jesus Christ. What does he connect with that idea of grace? The offering of Jesus, doesn't He? Who gave Himself for our sins. Now whenever you think of Jesus, you think of God's grace. But whenever you think of Jesus, you think of the definitive act and the expression of God's grace, which we have just taken part of and remembered in the Lord's Supper. In remembering the offering of his body and of his blood. That is the definitive act in which we see God's grace. In Galatians chapter 2, in Galatians chapter 2 and in verse 20, when Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Then notice what he says in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly what I want you to see in just the train of thought that Paul has here as he is talking about how Christ has been crucified and how it is no longer I who live, but now that I have been crucified with Christ, it is Christ who lives in me. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. That as we live as people who are crucified, in connection with that atoning sacrifice of Christ, we are living out the grace of God. That there is, in the death of Jesus, there is the expression of God's grace. That it is in His death, and as we are taking part of His death, as we'll talk about some more this morning, that it becomes so intertwined With this idea of God's grace, that we need to understand that it is when we are looking at Jesus and when we are looking to the cross of Christ, that is where we see grace revealed. But then we also recognize that grace is undeserved, it's given to those who are unworthy. In 1 John chapter 2, as the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2 and in verse 2, that talking about Christ and His death, that He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That Jesus, in that act of grace, in that moment when He offered Himself on the cross and dying, He died for the sins of the whole world. That grace was offered and made available for Everyone. And no one deserved it. No one was worthy of such a sacrifice. And yet Jesus was willing to offer Himself. God was willing to send His only begotten Son to die for us. In Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 1, to further help us understand the state in which we were in and how we were so undeserving and unworthy. In Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 59 and in verse 2, Isaiah would write, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. When we sin, we are dead to God. We are separated from Him. We are out of fellowship with Him. And I think that helps us realize just how marvelous and amazing God's grace is that God would send his son to die for us and to redeem us, those who are unworthy, those who are dead to him. He wants to renew that relationship. He wants to make that relationship a living relationship can't help but think in the garden in the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve had first sinned they came to realize their condition and they went and they hid themselves from the presence of God it says and in Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 9 then the Lord God called to the man and said to him where? are you? Can you imagine for the first time, and it's not as if God did not know where they were, but it, for the first time God is out of fellowship with His creation. And He asks that question where are you? And then He said I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself. Adam, for the first time, experiences fear because of his sin. You see, sin does not draw us closer to God. It makes us want to get further away from Him, doesn't it? Sin. Those who are sinners. Those who are dead to God. They don't deserve grace. They are out of fellowship with God. They are out of sync with him, they are incompatible. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 5, I think Paul helps us see this point very clearly in the book of Romans in the fifth chapter. In Romans chapter 5 and in verse 6, As he's talking about the grace of God and how Jesus has been willing to come and to die, he says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Skip down to verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. I want you to notice the three words there in verse six, it's that while we were helpless in verse eight, while we were yet sinners. And then in verse 10, while we were enemies, this isn't a beautiful picture, is it? It's one of strife and animosity and anger and separation. When we are not in sync with God, we are out of sync with Him. And yet what is amazing about God's grace is that God's grace has appeared to, for the sins of the whole world for everyone who is helpless or an enemy of God or who is a sinner and dead to God and separated from Him. God's grace has appeared to those who are out of sync or out of fellowship with Him. And that is hard for us to maybe wrap our mind around sometimes, but that is the truth of the matter. That no one deserved God's grace. God has offered His Son to those who are unqualified and undeserving and unworthy. And because of that, we have to be humbled by it. And we also are humbled by the fact that it is God who has initiated that. You know, many times whenever we might sin or whenever we might do something that is wrong, we kind of get caught. Then we want to make an appeal or we want to defend ourselves, right? We want to ask for forgiveness. We want to ask that this can be reconciled. Usually it's the guilty party who wants to first make that effort of reconciliation but what maybe can be really impressive to us is the fact that it is God who wants to be reconciled to us those who are unworthy and undeserving it is God who has initiated this in the book of Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 3 Paul writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Did you notice that? That when did God choose us? It was before the foundation of the world. Isn't that amazing? That God, He chose us in Christ. That He knew this was going to be the plan of the ages, the wisdom of the ages. That He would have to reconcile us through Jesus Christ. He knew that before He even created us. That God is the one who has initiated this grace and salvation. Chapter 2 and verse 4. In that verse, as, he, as we have read in verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That was our condition. And well, he says in verse 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. now this is an act of God that we begin to see. As the Apostle John would write in 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19 that we love because He first loved us. That God, He is the one who has initiated His grace first. And that is extremely humbling, isn't it? That He is the one who has wanted to renew that relationship with those who are sinned, and sinned, and lost, and separated from Him. But then what we also see about grace is that it transforms. That God's grace, it gives life to what was dead and to those who were dead. In chapter 2 and verse 1 of the book of Ephesians as we've repeatedly made mention of that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions. He has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What I want you to be impressed with here about God's grace is that it is able to transform. It's able to take what was dead and give life to it. That God's grace is capable of giving life to what was once dead. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 6, this is the same kind of description here. I think that Paul is speaking of here in Romans chapter 6. When he's speaking about baptism. In Romans chapter 6 and in verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too... Might walk in newness of life. He says that he describes the death process, doesn't he? That you were buried with him so that you were raised up from the dead to walk in newness of life. He goes on in verse 5 For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. God's grace takes those who are dead in sins and makes them alive to God. And all of that is generated by the power of Christ, isn't it? In in chapter 6 and verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. That just as Christ in that definitive act of grace in dying for our sins, and He was raised to die no more. That is the redemptive power. That's the gracious power that is behind it. God's grace gives life to what was once dead. And God's grace is capable of taking what is unholy and unrighteous and turning it into holiness and righteousness. In Romans chapter 6, in Romans chapter 6 and in verse 18, Paul says, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And then in verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. That we were once enslaved to sin. We were unholy, unrighteous people. But now, through God's transformation of God's grace, what has He been able to accomplish? Well, now it results in sanctification or holiness. Now you are no longer a slave to sin. Now you are a servant and a slave to righteousness. That God's grace is capable of taking what was dead and making it alive. God's grace is capable of taking what was unholy and making it holy. Taking what is unrighteous and transforming it into righteousness. God's grace changes our allegiances, doesn't it? If you notice in chapter 6 of the book of Romans and in verse 12... Paul says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. You don't do that anymore. That, that describes your former life. Where you have allowed sin to just reign and have dominion and power over you. But now, that's not to be so. In verse 16, he says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. The point is, Paul says, you're going to obey someone. You're going to obey something. It's either going to be in service unto self and to sin and to pleasure, which results in death, or you're going to be obedient to God, which results in life. He goes on in verse 17, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That we have had a change in our master. That's what God's grace is capable of doing. Where you're not just going to continue to serve yourself and sin and Satan. Now you're going to be a servant and a slave of God. God's grace changes those whom you serve. I enjoyed what one writer said, but the notion of a gift, and he's talking about grace there when he talks about gift, He says, but the notion of a gift with no strings attached was practically unimaginable in antiquity. It is a product of the modern era. None of Paul's hearers would have been surprised to learn that as recipients of the divine gift, they were placed under obligation to God. I think he's absolutely right, because in just looking at the language that Paul is using here, he's not describing that you're just free from any obligation because you've received grace. He says, actually, you're now under obligation to serve God. Isn't that the thought in the song that we sing, O Thou Fount of Every Blessing? I think it's that third verse. O to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let Thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wondering heart to Thee. That God's grace doesn't free us from any obligation at all. In fact, it requires an obligation, a daily obligation that we must be connected to God. The Bible doesn't present God's grace as something that frees us from obedience. In fact, it would require a life of obedience, of humbling ourselves and doing the will of God. And through obedience to God, we demonstrate the newness of life that we have been given. That's the demonstration of faith. And that's what God's grace is capable of doing. And ultimately, God's grace transforms us to become like His Son. In Romans chapter 8, just a couple of pages over in your Bible, in Romans chapter 8 and in verse 29, Paul says this here, he says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren, that he, And then you think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 in verse 1 and two, or chapter in verse 2 rather. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You think about what that is teaching us here. That we're not to be conformed and shaped and molded and fashioned after this world that we are supposed to be shaped and molded and fashioned after Christ Himself. And That happens by God's grace. Where we are no longer conformed to this world there, we're transformed, we are conformed to the image and the character and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now I've heard some people get a little confused about the righteousness of Christ there and we we tend to think or some some tend to think that God's or we somehow receive Christ's personal righteousness in our life and that whenever we sin or something God doesn't actually see us, He only sees Christ's righteousness covering us. I don't think that's at all the the biblical demonstration or picture there. Because I think that cheapens the grace of God. What God's grace is capable of doing is taking me or you, someone who is a sinner, and He is able to breathe life into what was once dead. Or someone who is unrighteous and unholy and God by His grace is able to give and transform you and make you righteous. It's not by your own works. It's by God's grace. We don't need to cheapen the grace of God. That God's grace is capable of changing you. Where you are able to share in the same quality and the same kind of righteous behavior of God's Son. By the power of His grace. But sometimes we can take grace and we can run with it, can't we? Some people, when they talk about grace, they end up actually mishandling God's grace. They might exaggerate certain aspects of God's grace at the expense of other things that would also be true. For instance, the initiative of grace that God was the one who first loved, and so we love Him in return. overemphasis on God's priority of grace I think has led people to believing that salvation is solely an act of God that's how you end up with the Calvinistic doctrine of irresistible grace that God does not save you unless he gives you the Holy Spirit who acts upon you and regenerates you and saves you and gives you faith and then only then can you come to be saved But it's God who gives you that. I don't think that's a biblical picture of of God's grace. This also leads to the teaching of the inability of man, which is connected with the Calvinistic doctrine of total inability, that why does God even have to show you his grace first? Or why does he have to give you the Holy Spirit? It's because you can't come to faith. You're completely unable to have faith according to calvinistic teaching you see they take a little bit of truth that god was the one who initiated in the sending of his son and then they take it and overemphasize that against other things that would not be true we sometimes think of grace as a free gift and sometimes we emphasize the, that idea of free to have no conditions or no obligations. God's grace is free in the sense that He initiated the gift of His Son without consideration of our worth because we were worth nothing. And God has redeemed us and saved us. But if we begin to emphasize that and exaggerate that so far where it has no conditions or no demands or no reciprocity, then it's not a biblical portrayal of God's grace. It leads to the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. As I think we have noted in the book of Romans already that God's gift of Christ and grace does come with demands. Demands. That we must be living sacrifices. As John Barclay in this book, and, God, and Paul and the Gift is what it's called, he says God's grace is designed to produce obedience. Lives that perform by heart inscription, the intent of the law, because He intends to transform the human condition. But His goal is not their continuing disobedience, but the obedience of faith. That God in His design, in His purposes, in extending grace, and the gift of Christ, then we are under obligation to serve Him and to do what He says. Whenever we might hear people speak of salvation as only an act of God, then we probably need to have our antennas up a little bit. We need to, if people start considering that man is completely unable to do what God says, and you can't do what God says. Unless God gives you something. Then we probably need to be aware of what's going on what they're saying and maybe what's underneath what they're saying. We hear people begin to have an improper definition of faith and obedience. We need to be aware of what might be causing some of that underlying issue. Whenever we are trying to tear apart any notion of reciprocity in relation to grace where we are reciprocating what we have been giving or obligation we need to be aware that people are mishandling God's grace and exaggerating some aspect of God's grace at the expense of another. God's grace is indeed amazing. And what is perhaps the most amazing thing about it all is that God's grace wants you to become a partaker of it. God in His grace wants you to come and to receive His grace. Paul writes in the book of Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 7 that you all are partakers of grace with me. You can come to become a partaker of God's grace. You can be a participant in His grace and His wonderful gift of Christ. And when it comes to the salvation that we have, that it is by grace through faith in which we are saved. The only thing that we can are left to say is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 15. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. And what we have to recognize is that grace does place on us the demand of obedience. To give your heart and your life to Him. To serve Him and obey Him where you would repent of your sins and you would confess your faith in Jesus (coughs) and where you would be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. God has given us His Son even though we are undeserving and unworthy. That truly makes this an amazing and wonderful gift that Jesus went to the cross to die for you. And God raised him from the dead, demonstrating that his grace and his power can transform you from your deadness and your sin into newness of life. Are you ready to become a partaker of God's grace? This morning, God invites you to come, to come to him and that you can be saved by his grace. This morning, if we can encourage you in any way, we hope that you will come now as we stand and as we sing.